you have your Bibles with you, open to Luke chapter 22. We're going to begin in verse 39. We've been working through Luke for a couple years. We're to the last moments of Jesus' life. The text that is before us is where the battle in one sense is won by Christ. We see him rise victorious. Let's look at this. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove the cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. He said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Father, I pray that your spirit would help us this morning as we look at this text, that your spirit would help me to point to the glory of Christ, the man who conquers all temptation perfectly. Father, I pray that we would look to Him, that we would listen to Him, that we would remember the spiritual world that we live in and the battle that we're in beyond what our eyes can see. Father, I pray that this cup that Christ is determined to drink would humble our hearts, cause us to give our lives fully to Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As a Christian, a common experience that we face is the moment where you have sinned again and you say, how did I end up here? Again. I know I struggle in this way or that way, but here I am again standing in failure. 
as I read this text, I see other men who are like me, the disciples, and I see one who is not like me, Christ, who is the one who conquers temptation. Paul was like me and like you. In Romans 7, he says, For I know nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do, do not want. This I keep on doing. And then a few verses later, he says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man am I, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And then he goes on in chapter 8 to say, There is now there for no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he shows us how to live by the power of the Spirit and how to put to death the deeds of the flesh and how to pray even when we don't know how to pray. He tells us how the Spirit takes our groanings and takes our imperfect prayers and prays them perfectly to the Father for us. So let's stand in awe this morning as we consider Christ, as we consider what He tells weak men like you and I. As we look at this text, it's a little different than Matthew and Mark's account. It's seven verses. It's not 11 verses. Matthew and Mark lay out the, the narrative. Matthew and Mark uh, explain how Christ three times came to the disciples came to Peter saying, are you sleeping? Don't you know that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak? He's saying, I know you love me. I know you want to die for me, but you don't know how weak you are in the flesh. So Matthew and Mark lay out the whole narrative. Luke condenses it and he puts it and in what, what they call an inclusio. There's a command at the beginning, pray that you may not enter temptation. There's a command at the end, pray that you may not enter temptation. And then you have Christ dominating in the middle, showing us what prayer looks like, showing us how to conquer temptation. And so you see, in a sense, the outline in your notes. Every part of me wanted to make the main point of the sermon. Jesus drinking the cup. 
And if I was preaching from Mark or Matthew, I would because that's what's highlighted. But what Luke highlights is yours and my responsibility to pray that we may not enter temptation. That's what the text highlights for us. And yes, Christ is the one who shines in this text. So let's just take a look at it and then let's consider how we apply this to our lives. In verse 39, we read, and he came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him. Now we know from uh, Matthew and Mark, this is called the Garden of Gethsemane, which literally means olive press. Uh, MacArthur writes that it was likely a privately owned uh, garden by a, a follower of Christ. This is someone's uh, olive garden that he owned. It was a private place that he allowed Jesus and his disciples uh, to use often. Back in Luke 21, 37, when Jesus had entered the temple and for three days overtook the temple and was preaching and ran out the leaders, we read in verse 37 of Luke 21, every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged at the mount called Olivet. This was a place that Judas knew well. And at the beginning of chapter 22, you remember when Judas decided he was going to betray Christ. We read in verse 1, now as it was the feast of unleavened uh, now the feast of unleavened bread drew near which is called the passover and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death for they feared the people so that was their problem how do we kill him not publicly then satan entered into judas and called into judas called Iscariot who is the number who was of the number of the 12 he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money, so he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. When Judas came, they were thrilled because they didn't know once it got dark in Jerusalem and you have all these people, where do they end up? Well, where do they end up at these private places where we could arrest him and kill him? But when Judas comes, now they have an inn. Now they have a way to find Christ. And we saw how Jesus, when he set up the Lord's Supper, when he wanted to eat, this last meal with his disciples and teach them so much on that night that nobody, not even the disciples, knew the place. Remember Jesus says, walk into the city, you'll see a guy carrying water, follow him. 
That was so nobody, the Peter or John, couldn't tell Judas where the supper's going to be. He's going to have that supper with them. But now is the time when Judas knew they would be in the garden and Jesus knew what was happening. That when he was going uh, to the garden, John 18, 2 tells us, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So you can see how the narrative is taking place, how they're ending up here. And then in verse 40, When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, when Jesus talks about praying, this is what he talks about. Remember Luke 11:4 in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive anyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Pray that you'll be led not into temptation. We've heard this before. We saw in verse 32 of the same chapter, Luke 22, that Jesus prayed that their faith may not fail. And when they have turned again to strengthen their brothers, but now we see God's work and man's work and how sometimes they feel contradictory, how they flow side by side. Jesus prayed that their faith wouldn't fail. And now Jesus is saying, pray for yourself that you would not enter into temptation. In a moment, we'll dive into what that looks like. Then look at verse 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. So you enter this garden. There's a gate. You set the disciples down uh, towards the gate. He goes about, I don't know, 40 yards away from them, about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Now Luke is a little different than Mark and Matthew here. He's, Luke records that he starts his prayer with, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So we see within Christ's prayer here, just as we look at it in a very uh, just quick way, Jesus is modeling a type of prayer that starts desiring God's will, ends desiring God's will, and then is, has an honest supplication, an honest request in the middle. And we're going to dive into what's in the cup in a moment. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. This is a spiritual battle. This is the culmination of the biggest battle there has ever been in the world. And it involves a man and men of flesh, and it involves the spirit world 
where an angel shows up to strengthen Jesus, who's in the flesh, but is in a spiritual battle. And his agony is beyond what anyone has ever known so that the physical effect of the spiritual agony is blood coming out as sweat. It's an actual uh, thing. I forget hemidrosis or something like that. It can happen when extreme stress happens. The capillaries burst open and the blood mixes with the sweat. And it's amazing to me when I read about the crucifixion, it, it, you know, it says, and they crucified him and he breathed his last breath and he died. So little detail, but yet in the garden here where we get a lot of detail, we get to understand this. It's like, how, how come there seems to be less detail there? And I think it's because the battle is being won here. Now it's one in action there, but the will of the man who's going to be obedient to the point of death needs to win now. And then we read, when he arose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. He just got done. Several hours this supper would have taken. Jesus has told them that Peter's going to betray him. He said that he's going to die, that his body is going to be given for them. Can you imagine getting downloaded? John 12 through John 17 in one supper from Jesus himself and the I'm going away but I'm sending the spirit I'm going to go I'm going to prepare a place for you I'm going to come again and get you this has been a lot to take in and they're sleeping for sorrow Luke the physician he's the one that gives us these sorts of details And then he says, And when he arose, he came to the disciples, found them sleeping for sorrow. He said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter temptation. There it is again. So, how do we, how does this apply to our life? If we don't know what temptation is, how do we know how to pray not to enter into it? So question one is, know the nature of temptation. Because, you know, that sounds like nice Christian spiritual words. What does it mean? (laughs) What does it look like? How do I pray so that I don't enter into it? In James 1, I think we get maybe the best help. 
other than Christ's example in this own text, which we'll look at in a moment. But James 1 and verse 12, he says this, Blessed is the man, or happy is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is being tempted, I am being tempted by God. Now, why does James say that? Because when things get rough, the enemy's going to come and he's going to say, God's not good, essentially. God's not good. God's holding out on you. Oh, you can't eat from every tree in the garden? Oh, Jesus, you're starving for 40 days? If I was your father, I would tell you to make this stone into bread. Your father's not good. The temptation for us is to blame God and to think he's not being good to us because we think something wrong. If God loved me, he would put me in the easiest situations possible and he'd get me out of all my suffering immediately. And it's a lie. It's not true. God the Father loves Jesus and Jesus is about to suffer terribly. So he, he says, don't let no one say when he's being tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now understand this. Think. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So what you need to watch out for is your desire. And if your prayer is to not enter into temptation, then your prayer is that your desires would be right. You see, Christ had a pure heart. So some scantily clad woman wasn't a temptation to his heart because he didn't desire fornication. It wasn't in his desire. So pray that your desires are what God would have your desires to be. Here's what it looks like entering into it. A person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire when it is conceived. <laughs> How is a child conceived? Through intimacy, right? So, when your flesh desires something wayward, the circumstance or the opportunity comes in front of you, you have a choice whether you're going to become intimate with the wayward temptation or not. 
Are you going to conceive in your mind? Are you going to run it through your head over and over and over again and become intimate with the temptation? If you are, you're entering into it. It's going to give birth to a baby and the baby is called sin. And when that sin is fully grown, it'll produce death. And so Jesus wants them to pray so that their brains are wanting what God wants and not what they want. Jesus is going to a cross and Peter says, may it never be. And Jesus says, Satan, get behind me. His mind is not wanting what God wants. And evidently, when you go to God in prayer and when the Holy Spirit helps you, In prayer, your desires start to become aligned with God's desires. But when you forget God and you're left to your own desires, unaffected by the Spirit of God, this is, you know, this is Paul saying, walk with the Spirit. (laughs) Pray and read your Bible. Those are the Spirit's words. To walk in the flesh is to stiff arm that. And let, let's, let's say your main sin is worry, like mine can be. All right? A bad thought comes into my mind. Am I going to be intimate with the thought or not? Am I going to run it through and say, well, yeah, then this could happen, then this could happen, then this could happen. <gasps> now what am I doing? I'm giving birth to sin. The initial idea is not sin. The question is, am I going to enter in to the temptation? All right? Know the nature of temptation. Second, meditate on Jesus' suffering. Meditate on Jesus' suffering. Look at at Jesus' request. Look at what he says in verse uh, 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. What would cause Jesus Christ to pray and ask one last time if there's any other way? In the cup, that Jesus is deciding to drink or not to drink is the full wrath of God. The eternal wrath of God for the sins of all the elect through all of history. Here's where as a preacher you just want to give up. How do I help you see? How can I even understand? If you know your Old Testament, this is a big cup. This is a difficult cup. Psalm 11.6 says this, Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Our Psalm 75.8, For the hand of the Lord... For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup 
with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours it out, or and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. All the wicked who die outside of Christ will drink the wrath of God and it will have no end because the one in whom they sinned against has no end. They're never going to get to the end of the cup of the wrath of God because the offense is eternal because He's eternal. So the justice demands eternal experience of the wrath of God upon this sinner outside of Christ. And Christ is here on this earth, taking on flesh, getting ready to drink the cup of the wrath of His Father, whom He's had perfect fellowship with His entire life. All of His joy, all of His comfort, all of His stability comes with this relationship to the Father through the Spirit of God. And Jesus is making a choice. You want to know what makes Jesus different than the lamb? Than the lambs that were slaughtered? Those lambs just thought it was another day. They're just walking like this. They're going over here. Oh, they pull my neck up and now I'm dead. Jesus is eyeing the cup. Jesus is looking at the cup. It's a willing choice. Isaiah 53 says with knowledge he did this. He knew every rape. He knew every selfish thought that he was dying for. And he knew he wasn't just going to take a little piece of it, but he was going to drink the cup down to the end. Drink all of it. Yes, he's in the flesh. Yes, it's going to hurt to be, to die physically, to be tortured physically. But the cup of the wrath of God to drink that. And so we see Jesus as a real man asking his father, I want your will to be done, father. Is there any other way. When the angel shows up to strengthen him, there's no other way. It's time. It's game time. This is what you came for. This is the plan. This is how it's going to happen. And he wants to do God's will more than avoid suffering. So many verses through the Old Testament about the cup. John MacArthur says, Christ's sorrow in facing death as a sin bearer is beyond comprehension. It's just beyond comprehension. I remember Paul Washer one time saying, I'm at a secular college and I'm uh, preaching the gospel to them. And some punk college kid says, you tell, answer me a question. How can one man die for a few hours and pay, pay for the sins of all the elect? 
How is that just? And Washer says, because you don't know who the one man is. It's not just one man. It's the eternal Son of God in the flesh. And our minds can't comprehend the incarnation. You tell me how the fullness of God dwells bodily in the in Jesus Christ and then in us. You look at the incarnation and say, the one who created the planets is that guy right there in that body? That blows your mind. And so it's no wonder we struggle when we get to this cup and trying to comprehend it. Back to MacArthur's quote. Christ's sorrow in facing death as a sin bearer is beyond comprehension. It defies description and surpasses understanding because what Jesus endured is absolutely unique and without parallel in human history. The account of his temptation in the garden confronts those who read it with an incalculable mystery. It leaves them awestruck over Christ's agony in facing the Father's anger at the cross and stunned by the intensity of this greatest of all battles against temptation. And he goes on to say that as sinners, our temptation is to sin and not be holy. Christ has only ever been holy. And now he's taking a conscious choice to bear sin upon his back. His temptation is unique compared to ours. You realize, those of you who say, Jesus can't save me. Jesus can't save me. He, he doesn't know what I did. For real now. You saying when he was in that garden that he left some of the drops in the cup? No, he didn't. He never saved you because he something good in you. That's not what he did. He came to save sinners and he came to drink the cup all the way down. Thirdly, replicate Jesus' prayer. Starts with the will of God. Prays what he desires. Ends with the word of God. Is this not the only proper way to pray? We're the creature and he's the creator. And even when the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, enters into flesh for him to fulfill all righteousness and faithfulness. He needs the spirit and prayer to his father. How much more do we? How foolish are the disciples? Jesus needs to pray and they're sleeping. We need to pray. You see, when we don't pray, we don't believe we're in a spiritual battle. If it's just a physical battle and we got enough brains and we're smarter than the person over here, then we just go do it. 
But if we actually believe we live in the world we live in, a spiritual world where we need the Holy Spirit to defeat the remaining sinful flesh in our life, and we're fighting against principalities and powers of dominion, then we'll pray if we remember what's true. We will pray. And so that's how Jesus prayed. Once again, the lesson is clear. It's, it's, it's self-evident. The disciples aren't praying. Jesus is praying. And anyone could look at that and say, if Jesus needs to pray, then we need to pray. And guess what? No, those disciples weren't going to bear the wrath of God for sin. But they were going to be rejected by men. They were going to be tortured to death and killed. And they need to follow Christ in his prayer. Prayer aligns our hearts to the will of God. You say, how so? Because by its nature, you're saying, I can't do it on my own. You're humbling yourself under God when you pray. And I don't care how much theology you know or how good you can do on a theology test. If you don't pray, you don't believe the stuff you know. It's prayer that reminds us of who we are in our need. Have you ever been asked to pray when your heart was bad? It's the most uncomfortable thing in the world. Happens to me often. Pastor, will you pray? Oh. Yeah, I start praying and I realize I'm not very close to God right then. It reveals where a person's at and you can't talk to your spouse. You can't talk to your husband or your, your wife. Well, try praying with them. It's a little harder to hold the grudges when you bring it to the throne of God with them. Quit trying to talk it out. Pray. Pray together. Let God through his spirit as you humble yourself and you say, God, we need you to work. This marriage isn't going to work unless you do a miracle. Unless you do a miracle, there's no hope here. So we come in prayer. And then that's when God often does his work. Wonder, fourthly, wonder at Jesus' love. I'm sorry, when, when you think of that cup and you look at him eyeing it up, he has a choice. He has a choice and he's a real human being. And he really is the eternal son of God. It would be hard as a human being in all the weakness of the flesh. That would make it hard and it would be hard having perfect union with your father for all eternity. And on that cross, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He isn't getting something wrong there. 
He's bearing the wrath of God in that relational separation as God's anger is poured out on him for our sins. Meditate or wonder at Jesus' love for you. He knew what he was doing. John 12, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. John 12, 27. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this person I've come. Or but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Or John 12, 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. He knew it. He saw it. He chose it. And that's love. That's what you call self-sacrificial love. Second Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If any man get to heaven, he's got to have perfect righteousness and no sin. We don't have perfect righteousness. We got all sorts of sin. And the truth of the gospel is this. If anyone will come with a repentant heart and say, God, save me. I'm a sinner. My only hope is in Christ's perfect life. I need his righteousness and I need to get rid of my sin. That's what happens when a person clings to Christ. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. It's a substitutionary suffering and atonement that he might bring us to God. <laughs> Look at the love of God. He grabs sinners. He doesn't only not give them wrath. He doesn't just show them mercy. Well, I'm not going to give you what you deserve, but then he gives you what you don't deserve. He pulls you up into his family to be with God forever. See how God strengthened Christ. See how God strengthened Christ. Look at this. In verse 43. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Strengthening him. The Son of God being strengthened for a little while, being made lower than the angels. The angels come and they strengthen Christ. Hebrews 1.14 says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent? out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Matthew 18.10 says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, one of these Christians, for I tell you that in heaven, their angels, plural, always see my face, the face of my Father who is in heaven. I don't know. Do you believe you live in this world? Do you believe you live in a world where for you as the elect, you as Christians, have angels 
to strengthen you like they strengthen Christ in the midst of temptation. I suppose when we don't believe that, we don't pray. We don't come for spiritual help if we don't believe in the spiritual world. God gives practical help because you're not just merely flesh, but you're spirit. How does God strengthen us in our temptation? Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Man sinned, so he must take on flesh to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The Spirit of Christ helps us in our temptation. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. God knows you're weak. God didn't pick you and say, Oh, I thought you were a good one. Now you keep screwing up. He knew the disciples were weak in the flesh. Their spirit was willing, born again, but their flesh was weak. Look at this. Jesus walked through the darkest moment of his life looking at this cup by communion, by communing with Christ or with God the Father. Look at these promises were given. Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In your worst circumstance, in the hardest day of your life, the Lord prepares a table for you. And you can have communion. I tell you what, Jesus gets up, blood dripping off his face, and he says, here comes my betrayer. Let's go. Let's go. Which means, through that darkest hour, he had communion with God that gave him the resolve to do what was right. There must have been a table prepared that he could make that choice. Don't believe the lie when you're in the midst of that suffering that God doesn't love you and God isn't good. It's not true. Psalm 16.10 says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
Jesus told his disciples, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'll be with you to the end of the age. Whatever we face, whatever's in front of us, we, we won't ever experience condemnation for our sins. Punishment on this earth? Yes. Consequences on this earth? Yes. But it's discipline of a kind father. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if there's no condemnation, then there's adoption. And if there's adoption, then you'll never cease to have the presence of God with you on the hardest day of your life. Finally, learn from the disciples' failure to pray. Peter is about to deny Christ three times. He isn't fighting in the spirit at this time. And he falls and he gets restored and he walks in the power of the spirit. And even, even once he's restored, Paul's got to come and rebuke him and saying, you're, you're out of line. But let's learn from Christ. As I read this text, I don't know, I just saw what strength looks like. As Jesus suffered, as he experienced agony, as his soul was stretched, he goes to the Father. He just looked like he just looks like such the man. The way Mark and, and Matthew just say, get up. Here comes my betrayer. And it's just like, I'm doing it. And I just think, I want to be that kind of person who doesn't sulk in the midst of suffering, who doesn't feel sorry for myself, but one who goes to God and then stands up in the power of the Spirit and obeys Father, I pray that you would help us meditate on this text. It seems like certain failure to preach something like this and to comprehend all that's there. But Lord, what's here is simple enough for a child to understand. That Jesus died and took the punishment we deserved, drank our hell for us so that we would never have to drink it if we would turn and cling to him in repentance and faith. Father, I pray that everyone in this room would look at their life and would look at what hope you have without Christ facing a holy God in your sins. And then would look over at Jesus dying in the stead place of sinners out of pure love. Father, I pray that everyone here would choose Christ, would cling to Christ, realize life is pointless without Christ. Lord, remind us to pray. If we don't pray much, would you use this message, Lord? Would you, would you use this scripture to bring about habits of prayer and going to you with everything? Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.